Prominently standing as one of the highest mountain peaks in the nation, the Pacific Northwest's Mount Hood, southeast of Portland, Oregon, boasts rare year-round skiing with lift service in North America and over 4,600 acres of skiable terrain. Noted as a potentially active stratovolcano in the Cascade Mountains volcanic arc, this majestic and eye-catching mountain has been measured at three different heights. The sundry snow-covered peak's most recent measurement came in at 11,240 feet, 3,426 meters, based on a 1993 scientific expedition. Mount Hood is considered to be the most likely volcano to erupt in the Cascade region. However, according to its historical activity, the U.S. Geological Survey believes an explosive eruption is unlikely. The odds of an eruption occurring within the next 30 years are between 3 and 7 percent. On this, quote, potentially dormant volcano reside 12 glaciers and snowfields, accumulations of permanent snow or ice. The most popular climbing route on Mount Hood is near Palmer Glacier, which is partly within the borders of the Timberline Lodge ski area. The same lodge depicted in the Haunted Mountain Hotel in the movie The Shining and the starting point of one of the most tragic tales on Mount Hood, now known as the 1986 Mount Hood Disaster. Base camp was a required sophomore program of Oregon Episcopal School and it ran under the principles of Outward Bound. Outward Bound is an international nonprofit network of outdoor education organizations founded initially in the United Kingdom in 1941. This organization is reputed to have influenced the U.S. Peace Corps and aims to develop its participants' personal growth and social skills through challenging outdoor expeditions. In the months leading up to the base camp expedition of 1986, the 10th grade students were trained on the technical aspects of snow climbing like self-arrest during a fall, performing first aid, and how to step kick in descent and plunge step a descent in snow. The group's leader, Tom Goman, was a priest with a Ph.D. in chemical physics and spectroscopy and was no stranger to the outdoors. He was a well-seasoned mountaineer and had made multiple ascents up the highest peaks in Oregon and Washington, completing 18 climbs on Mount Hood. This base camp trip was only one of many. It was Monday, May 12, 1986, at 3 a.m., and the 20-strong group led by the school's chaplain, Thomas Goman, set out on their expedition from Timberline Lodge, expecting to be back by the end of the day. The group included 15 students, one administrator, two guides, a student's mother, Goman, their expedition leader, Ralph Summer, a professional guide, and D. Zidoniak from Outward Bound. Despite their multi-day storm forecasted on the mountain, they began their trek just west of the route up Mount Hood. Goman believed that the worst part of the storm would not hit until after their climb would be complete. The group was equipped with crampons, carabiners, ice axes, helmets, seat harnesses, prussic slings, a field stove, one sleeping bag, nylon tarp, two first aid kits, compasses, long wands to mark their path, 
and a shovel to dig through icy snow. Their six-mile round-trip climb began at about 6,000 feet and into slightly above freezing temperatures. The snow was nearly a foot deep, and their footsteps created a crunchy rhythm that broke the silence of the night around them. A unique feature of Mount Hood is the volcanic steam vents called fumaroles that decorate the length of the mountain with misty veils that glow in the light of the moon. The weather forecasted by local meteorologists, however, was more concerning than one of these scenic scapes. The group's visibility at the start was fair enough to encourage the experienced leader Goman to have the group press on. Over the next several hours, six climbers in the group turned back, and each safely made it back to the lodge. The first to turn around were Hillary Spray and her mother, Sharon. Hillary had a stomachache and decided it would be unwise to push herself on such an excursion. As the climbing group continued and reached Silcox Hut at about 7,000 feet, Lorca Smetna, accompanied by Courtney Boatsman, got permission from Gorman to head back down the mountain as Lorca complained of painful cramps. The way back down for them was noted to have been easy to follow, even in questionable weather, to ensure their safe return. Two more students turned back later that morning, including D. Zidoniak, who was suffering from mild snow blindness, yet could still manage to return down the mountain alone. In the two hours after Zidoniak departed from the group, the weather suddenly turned. Unworried, Goman thought it was empowering to keep pushing the group to summit and to head back down, believing they could make it. Not everyone in the group felt as optimistic, however. Summers decided to go about 40 feet ahead to check conditions, but they were only growing worse. Summers later wrote, When the distance between us increased to the limit of visibility, I decided to go back to the group. I told Tom that I thought we should get out of there. I told him to go to the front of the group and make sure they stayed in our tracks. It was 2 p.m. at 11,000 feet, and visibility was at 20 to 30 feet. Finally, Goman was convinced they did indeed need to turn back as complications only grew worse. By 3.30, the youngest student, Patrick McGinnis, had slurred speech and from his staggering, he fell over. First signs of hypothermia were setting in, as all he wanted was to fall asleep. The group kicked what they learned into gear. They all huddled together with Patrick in the middle and put him in the group's only sleeping bag. One of the senior students, Susan McClave, removed her jacket and boots and climbed in to warm him up. Meanwhile, Summers ignited the field stove to boil water for McGinnis, and added two lemon drops to dissolve for added carbohydrates. Nearly an hour passed until the group could get moving again. Summers and McClave assumed leadership of the descent as Goman was showing signs of disorientation and fatigue. Mistakenly, Goman had led the group sideways instead of down the mountain. As they continued, Summers noticed a crack and grew anxious that they might be crossing White River Glacier. Glaciers have gaps, 
and in a blizzard, snow can accumulate and harden within the cracks, creating dangerous bridges over empty space below. Once compromised, these bridges can collapse. Summers urged the students to follow in his footsteps and to not step on the crack. Visibility was growing worse, and the winds were blowing stronger. Summers pushed ahead of the group and discovered another crack that appeared to him to be about 30 feet deep. Evening was approaching, and with one student unable to walk unassisted, sub-zero temperatures, slim visibility, and over 70 mile per hour winds, Summers knew their only choice was to dig in or die. Summers and Goman managed to dig the snow cave in about an hour. During that hour, the rest of the group attempted to keep warm and fight back fear of worst-case scenarios. The cave was about 6 feet by 8 feet, with 4 feet of clearance in height inside, considerably snug for the 13 of them. Breathing became a struggle in the cave, and panic for insufficient oxygen prompted the group to take turns outside in the hurricane winds. Goleman volunteered to be one of the first to sit out in the biting cold, wholly exposed to the elements. Inside the cave, the group shifted around, attempting to keep the mouth of the cave clear. The snowy winds were relentless, and at one point absorbed the shovel and sleeping bag, leaving the group with only ice axes to clear the entrance. At first light, Summers recounts asking Goman to count to ten for him. He couldn't. Desperate to do something to keep the group alive, Summers set out with Molly Shula, one of the advanced climbers, in search of help. Their descent went horribly off track, but at least led them to the Mount Hood Meadows Ski Resort Lodge, two miles east of Timberline Lodge. They were saved, but the storm did not relent. The Portland Mountain Rescue Team reached Timberline by 5.21 a.m. Winds were recorded at 103 miles per hour at the top of the Palmer chairlift, hurricane-level speeds, which prevented anyone from even standing. In 24 hours, four feet of snow had accumulated on the mountain. The group inside the snow cave regularly attempted to clear the opening throughout the night to avoid getting trapped inside. Allison Litzenberger, Aaron O'Leary, and Eric Sandvik had made their way outside the cave, collecting what courage they had left to spur them onward down the mountain. But the storm was too powerful. The cave became sealed with eight people inside. The sheriff established a staging area, and several rescue crews assembled along with Portland Mountain Rescue including the 304th Air Force Pararescue Squadron. Amidst one of the worst storms on Mount Hood that rescuers had ever experienced, there was nothing they could do but wait for the winds to die down. The winds were so brutal that they entirely blew over a snowcat and then blew out a window. Teams couldn't see, and they couldn't move rendering any rescue attempts useless and life-threatening. But they still tried. 
The storm finally broke at 2 a.m. on Wednesday, nearly three days after the expedition began. But now, rescue crews were able to start moving. Winds kicked up again, forcing the Portland Mountain Rescue Team to shelter in place. But at 5.45 a.m., they spotted two black dots on the White River Canyon area. Curled up as if to stay warm, the two bodies were sorrowfully found lifeless. Further up, another rescue crew spotted another that had collapsed in the snow. Allison Litzenberger, Aaron O'Leary, and Eric Sandvik, who were outside the cave, didn't make it. Alpine rescue teams from Oregon and Washington logged nearly 6,000 hours on the mountain. But where was the cave? The storm had blown a blanket of snow across the face of the mountain, erasing any visible signs of the cave. Summers joined the group of searchers after crews had analyzed and marked the likely cave location. The rescue team established a fine probe line of 8,500 feet, and rescuers three feet apart slowly worked their way down. They pushed 10-foot avalanche poles into the snow, and at just 22 minutes before the search party was scheduled to end, Sergeant Charlie Eck with the 304th hit something. Rescuers frantically began digging and found a void that smelled foul. The team found the cave, and they heard a faint moaning. <sighs> Student Britton Clark was found semi-conscious, and guide Giles Thompson was also alive. For three months following, Thompson battled for his life in the hospital. He suffered cardiac arrest upon arrival, and both his legs had to be amputated. But he recovered and survived. Now 35 years later, the details of this disastrous account on Mount Hood are more well known. The Oregon Episcopal School commemorates this tragedy every year in May. Outward Bound founder Kurt Hahn once stated, The experience of helping a fellow man in danger, or even of training in a realistic manner to be ready to give this help, tends to change the balance of power in a youth's inner life. Nine people tragically lost their lives on this Mount Hood excursion. It proved to be an experience that taught so much more than it had set out to do. One of the most important lessons for mountaineers from this disastrous account of survival and tragedy is to concede to weather warnings. The weather conditions in this incident were unusual and uncommon, and many courageous decisions were made on that mountain during those three calamitous days. The training and knowledge instilled in this group were nothing short of advantageous in such a life-threatening situation. But for those who did survive, a miracle occurred. Frigid temperatures, blizzard and whiteout conditions, high altitudes and steep slopes are some of the most dangerous elements you can endure. Only well-trained, conditioned, and equipped teams can survive in such a harsh environment. Even if you begin your wilderness adventure in the most benign conditions, dramatic weather changes have to be expected when you are in the wild. Thank you for tuning in to another exciting installment of In the Wild. To hear more captivating stories of real-life survival, hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Stay prepared because you never know when you may find yourself 
in the wild. <laughs>